The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. So remain standing, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word this evening. We're continuing in our series in the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 27, page 67 in the uh, Pew Bible. So we'll read the entire chapter of Exodus chapter 27. Let's worship the Lord by giving careful attention to this, the public reading of his word. Exodus 27, beginning in verse 1. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And you shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be of one piece with it and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make pots for it to receive its ashes and shovels and and basins and forks and firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall also make for it a grating, a network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. And you shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. And you shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle on the south side. The court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side, Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court on the west side, there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for the one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. On the other side, the hangings shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen 20 cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, the breadth 50, and the height 5 cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning Before the Lord, it shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask his help as we look to his word this evening. Oh, Lord, we do ask what earlier we did sing. Oh, Father, would you come to us? Come by your word and spirit. 
Grant to us, each one, a heart that indeed says, Teach me thy way. Come to us, Holy Spirit, and enlighten our minds that we might understand the precious things of Christ. Grant that our hearts might be soft, that we might receive those things. Oh, Lord, might we see the glory of of, uh, uh, your own glory shining in the face of our Savior once again this evening and work in us by your spirits, conforming us more unto the likeness of his image, that indeed we would glorify you in our lives. Uh, These things we ask for in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the week before last, uh, Matthew Azell called me. He was a bit concerned that maybe he was stealing my material this evening. He was a bit concerned that some of the content of his sermon fit just as well or maybe better with my sermon. And I assured him that that's no problem. You know, as we make our way through all that we learn with regards to the, uh, the, 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 the tabernacle, we're in some ways going to feel at times like we're preaching the same message over and over again, part of our work as preachers is to seek to bring that message in ways that are, are, are new or make them seem new and fresh to us. But I hope we never get grow tired of hearing that message. What a wonderful, glorious message it is. Receive it, believe it afresh, live it out. This is the message of God's plan, God's work, God's great provision whereby we as people might dwell with him forever and ever. He's made a way whereby sinners can enter into his, his presence to be with him. We saw that last time with the materials, the orientation, and the design of the tabernacle. We see it again this evening. Up to this point, what we've considered really are those things which have pertained to the holy place and the most holy or the holy of holy. So if you stop and think about it, what that means is that we've been discussing those things which hardly anyone ever saw, right? The vast majority of the people never saw those things. This evening, we're moving outside. We're moving out to the, the, uh, the, the outer court, as it were. And so now we're seeing, we're, we're into that area where the, the, the whole congregation was able to gather, we're going to, uh, we read about the altar and the, the courtyard and its fence. And then interestingly, we then read about the oil for the lampstand. In some ways, yes, we're hearing the same old message, but we're seeing that message through these new things now introduced to us. One image that comes to mind as I think about what we see going on in the text this evening is that there was continual burning, the continual ongoing burning of the fire of the sacrifices on the altar right there in the fenced courtyard. And then there was the continual supply of the oil to keep the lamp burning in the holy place. Uh, Brothers and sisters, may the significance of all these things never grow old for us. Think of that image and and may our prayer be that that the truth of the gospel might increasingly and continually burn like a fire in our hearts. Our message this evening is this, that the altar, the fenced courtyard, and lamp oil all serve as part of the continual burning testimony of God's plan to dwell with his people forever and ever. We're going to unpack that message this evening with a three points, and the three points will simply pertain to those, those three elements, the altar, and then the courtyard fence, and then the lamp oil. So we'll start with the altar then, our first point, that God's people would come to him 
only through the altar of sacrifice. In our text, this, this is verses 1 through 8, right? With the altar, the Lord was teaching his people that he, the Holy One, the Holy God of Israel, would be approached by his people only through sacrificial atonement for sins. Matthew showed us how, how as sinners, we, the entire human race, we've been cast away from the presence of God, separated from him because of our sins. We were, we were banished from the garden, right? Made to dwell east of Eden, as it were. Recall that, that the Lord had, had appointed those cherubim, preventing any way from, his, from people, sinners, re-entering that original garden paradise tabernacle. They guarded it, and they guarded it with, with, with what? Something continually burning, that flaming sword. You would be consumed if of yourself you tried to enter of themselves, sinners could never enter into God's holy presence. God was not to be approached. And in fact, we see, see that same truth with respect to the tabernacle, the new tabernacle, this tabernacle. In fact, later in Numbers chapter 1, we're told that, that the Levites were appointed to guard the tabernacle. Any outsider, any unauthorized person who would seek to enter the tabernacle would be, was to be put to death. But amazingly then, what we see is that God had, had provided a way by which he could be approached. The continual burning uh, of the, the uh, sacrifice on the altar. The altar of burnt sacrifice, I say continually burning, because we learn in, uh, later in Leviticus chapter 6, verse 13, that, that it was to keep on burning. It says that the fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. So just think about this then. So upon passing through, through that gate entrance on the east side, the very, the very first thing that the Lord wanted his people to see was this massive altar. We know, of course, that, that altars had been a, an important part of the, 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 the tradition, the history of the covenant people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all made altars and sacrificed to the Lord. Even Noah before them. These, these altars were always constructed just from earth, dirt, and or uh, stacked stones. These altars were, were large, kind of flat-topped blocks, sort of tables on which to lay an animal for sacrifice. I think that we can say that every single altar ever constructed for the Lord, every patriarchal altar, all pointed forward in some sense to the thing that we see commanded of the Lord in our text this evening. A more permanent altar, permanent, albeit transportable with the tabernacle. We see in verse 1 that it was constructed of acacia wood. It was square-shaped those dimensions there translate into seven and a half feet on each side of the square-shaped altar and a four and a half uh, foot high, uh, four and a half feet high. The altar was to have four horns on the corners, a built one piece with the altar, as we see in verse 2. The, these horns were utilized for tying the animal to the altar. Perhaps the, the, the horns, it's been suggested, they also symbolized uh, the power of God. Uh, we also learn later that the, the, uh, that the priests would take and they would, they would put the blood of the sacrifice on each of those 
horns. Perhaps that some have suggested that there's symbolism there, that these, these horns were pointing upward to the God of heaven to whom these, these uh, uh, sacrifices were being offered. See that the altar was to be overlaid with bronze. This, of course, was in, one of the functions was to help the bird from not, the, the wood from not being burned and consumed uh, in the sacrifice. So acacia wood overlaid with bronze. This is why it's sometimes referred to as the brazen, brazen altar. And all the utensils, verse 3, the pots for receiving the ashes, as well as the shovels, the basins, the forks, the fire pans, all the utensils to be used for the priestly activity were to be made of bronze. <clears throat> In verses 4 and 5, the Hebrew is a bit difficult there, but it seems to describe a, a bronze grilling surface, a grate, and a bronze net, sort of a network which, which hung below. So this was the lower half of the altar. And this was, of course, provided for, for good airflow to keep that, the, the, the fire burning well, containing the burning wood and the coals while burning well and sending plenty of heat in order to cook that meat on the surface grill. The bronze rings, verse 4, and the poles, verse 6, poles of acacia wood, Overlaid with bronze, this uh, enabled them to transport this altar. This this altar needed to be carried. That's why there needed to be uh, the, the rings, the poles, and probably why it was made hollow. You know, this that this was heavy anyway. You know, imagine it took some strength to carry that that thing around. But perhaps the idea was there was uh, the hollow parts so that when it was set up, it could be then packed with some earth in order to help preserve it amidst the fire and the heat of the burning sacrifice. But note again in verse 8, that important command, this echoes what we've already heard, we saw it in 25 and 26, that command, all, or sorry, as it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. As, as it's been shown you, God's command, God's blueprint had to be followed Precisely, we see again that God is the one who determines the means whereby sinners can come into his, his presence. And on one level, this again sends that, that message that, that God is not to be approached. In some ways, we're echoing the message that we heard back in chapter 19, verse 12. Remember, there were limits set around the mountain. The message was, don't go up. In fact, don't even go near. Don't touch the edge, or you will, be, you will die, right? If you even come near and touch the mountain, you'll be consumed by the fire of God's wrath. And yet, and yet, at the same time, what we see is that the, 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 this message of a continually burning altar was the message that, that here God was providing this means whereby his, the fire of his burning wrath could be placed not on the sinner, but instead on the substitutionary sacrifice poured out on that sacrifice. But the message was that you're not to think, you're not to think for one second that you can go to this God without first dealing with him at the altar, as it were. Dealing with him by, by coming to the blood of the sacrifice whereby your sins can be atoned for, whereby you can be forgiven. This is the gospel, isn't it? This is the message we believe. This is why we're here today. This is our message to the world. This is our message to anyone here tonight 
if there is anyone here tonight who's never, never turned to Jesus and trusted him in, in, in true repentance and faith, trusting in his blood shed on the cross for your sins. See, without Christ, you can never go to God, not without expecting from him anything but the fire of his judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that through him, through Christ, through that blood sacrificed on the cross, we can enter in. We can have our sins atoned for and washed away by his blood shed on the cross. Indeed, for all those who draw near, the sacrifice was, was serving as a, as a means of, of consecrating and, and setting apart God's people, atoning for their sins, washing away their sins in the blood. The fire serves then as this, this means of, of consecration and purifying God's people, that whereby they may worship in, in Him in His holiness and be with Him forever and ever, dwelling it with Him. What marvelous, marvelous grace we see here. And of that, that testimony of grace, the altar then stood as a continual burning testimony. And it stood as such right there in the courtyard. That brings us to our our second point this evening. The second thing we see, the, the, the courtyard fence, our second point, is that God's people then could come within the fence into his holy courtyard. This is verses 9 through 19. Consecrated by the sacrifice, God's holy people could come into God's holy presence. Granted, they could not go all the way into the the holy place or the holy of holies, at least not not all of them. But this courtyard was indeed marked off as a holy place in that it was set apart. It was separate from the outside world, the unclean world separated by a holy fence, as it were. I say fence. I don't mean a, a chain-link fence. That's not what this was. These were, these were curtains, as we see in verse 9. These were, these were hangings of fine, twined linen. So there was this, this fence, a fence which ran a long way, 150 feet on both the north and south sides, as we see in verse 10 and verse 11. There were to be 20 pillars and there are 20 bases, which were to be made of bronze. We see in verse 10 and again down in verse 17 that the hooks of the pillars and their fillets were to be made of, of silver. Fillets were, the, were the, uh, the, the curtain rods, the rods by which the pillars were, were joined together and from which these curtains hung, joined to the posts by the hooks. The bases of the pillars were, were made of bronze, as we see in verse 18. And we see in verse 19 that there were, there were pegs of bronze. So these, these pillars were, were held in place as they were fastened uh, to the ground by these pegs. I presume that, that you know, with the strong wind, these were, these were not really lightweight. These were significant, heavy, heavy-duty curtains there to withstand the wind. The west side of the fence, verse 12, was to be exactly half the dimensions of the north and south sides, and then the east side, verses 13 through 15, was exactly the same, really, except that it had the gate. There was the the entry point. The gate, verse 16, was to be a a screen 20 cubits or 30 feet long of blue and purple and scarlet yarn, uh, yarn of fine twined linen embroidered with a needlework. It was to have four pillars and with them uh, the four 
bases. Now, verse 18 gives us the the total dimensions of this uh, courtyard, if we can picture this. This translates into an area, then, of 150 feet long, 75 feet wide, and all of it enclosed by this this fence, some seven and a half feet tall. In some ways, this fence, and really, I would say, the entire uh, courtyard, it sort of served as something of a buffer zone, if you will, between the holy God and the unholy outside world. You know, this, this, this brought protection, didn't it? It brought protection so that, that God's holy presence would not break out and the fire of his holiness consume and destroy outsiders. And at the same time, it also ensured that the, that the sinfulness, the unholiness, did, did not break through and defile God's holy presence. And only Israelites were allowed to enter into this this courtyard, into this tabernacle area. But not while they were ceremonially unclean. They had to be clean. They had to be ritually pure. And here again, uh, on the one hand, this, this sent that clear message. God is not to be approached by sinners, right? He is holy. He is, he is separate from the outside world. He is cut off, separated from sinners, separated because of their sin. On the one level, this is, again, just like what we saw in chapter 19, what we saw in chapter 24, where, where most of the congregation had to, to wait at the foot of the mountain. Only, only the priests and later the 70 elders were able to go up the mountain, at least partway up the mountain, and only Moses was, to, was uh, able to reach the summit. Again, he, in fact, even there in the courtyard, even, even uh, uh, the vast majority, of course, never, never went into the Holy of Holies, but even in the courtyard with respect to the, 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 uh, the altar of sacrifice, only the priest could touch the altar. So no doubt... No doubt we've seen this again and again and again. Important part of the message of the Old Covenant, a message that we take away from the, everything we learn about with the tabernacle is, is that you cannot go near this God who dwells in holiness, this God who dwells in heavenly glory. And yet, look what we're, what we're seeing here, the other side of the coin. Wonder of wonders, what amazing grace. Here we find that God had portioned off this place, this entire courtyard, 150 feet long by 75 feet in width, a place where all of God's people consecrated and and purified by the blood of the sacrifice could come in, come and be in the presence of God. They could not touch the altar, but they could come near and they could observe that priestly work, that which functioned as a means by which God was dealing with their sins. He was forgiving them, consecrating them, purifying them for himself. They were enabled, I think we can say in in a sense, they were enabled into heaven, enabled to enter in to heaven, as it were. I mean, just think about this. Imagine that 
that verse 16, heavenly beauty reflected even in the gate, that screen with the blue and the purple and the scarlet yarns and the fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. How marvelous, how beautiful. It was a picture. That's what the, the, the temple was, what the tabernacle was, a, a copy of the heavenly things. And even there in the outer court, you could see some of the beauty of heaven itself. How marvelous. And yet I think we would have to say this evening that the, the most beautiful thing of all of it was not, not the bright colors of, the, uh, uh, of that yarn, not even the, shiny, uh, the, the, the shininess of the bronze and the silver. What was the most glorious? What was the most pleasing to God is back to the altar. It was the sacrifice, right? We could say it was, it was the smoke, right, which ascended up and which God found to be pleasing Think about that smoke, that smoke, which, which like the, uh, the cloud on top of Mount Sinai, it represented the, the presence of God. Indeed, the sacrifice with that, that ascending smoke, it was something, of a, something of, a, of a portal up into heaven. You know, when we study the Bible, we see the way that, that sacrifices functioned that way. We think of Judges chapter 13. Do you remember the time that the angel of the Lord appeared to the parents of Samson? Well, how was it that the angel returned up into heaven? It was when the sacrifice was offered. They offered a grain offering to the Lord, and it says in Judges 13:20 that the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. And even before that, the flame itself is described as going up toward heaven from the altar. And so it was with every sacrifice. It's been, it's been pointed out that, that when that animal was offered on the altar, it wasn't like the animal was just burned up and consumed and, and brought to nothing. What really was happening was that, that the animal was being transformed. It was turned into smoke. And that smoke ascended up into heaven. That smoke ascended up into the presence of the heavenly God and was a sweet-smelling sacrifice to him, to the Lord, the God of Israel. How could that be? Friends, why is that? How could an animal burned up on earth translate into smoke, which is so pleasing to God in heaven? Well, we know the answer. The answer is Christ. We know that it's all because God himself in Christ would come down to us. He would leave the glory of heaven and dwell with us in this sin-cursed world. And he would obey God perfectly. And his obedience would be that sweet-smelling sacrifice of which the Father would be so pleased and by which he would be blessed and glorified and magnified. We know that all of the, the sacrifices, the sacrifices on the altar, they were typological, weren't they? They all pointed to, to Christ. They were all that means by which God was, was uh, uh, working in his elect, the means by which the elect were built up in their faith in the coming Messiah. They reminded the worshipers that they were, that they were those who were called heavenward into the place where God would dwell with them and he with them at last in all of his heavenly glory. The fire of the altar then right there in the courtyard, separate from the world. It was a reminder of, the, of the, these wonderful truths. In a sense, allowing them to come into the courtyard, the Lord was saying to his people, you are in the world, but you are not of the world, right? You, you are my holy people. 
You are forgiven. You are consecrated through the blood of the sacrifice. You are purified. You are to then offer unto me worship and service that is pure as you dwell in my presence forever and ever. And I think we see that reflected well by the last thing that we see in our text this evening in terms of what they were commanded to do. This is the last section, our last point this evening. We see that their oil contributions would sustain the burning lampstand in the holy place. So this is those last two verses, 20 and 21. You know, we, we really could have taken this, this section uh, in the next section to go with the next chapter, as some do. Others see it as belonging to the same section. Whatever the case, I think this ought to be for us this evening, such a fitting word of application. Application for them and application for us. Think of it this way. God says, I've atoned for your sin. I have consecrated you as my people. I have purified you such that you might dwell in my presence. Now worship me, serve me, offer unto me pure worship and service. And particularly in this context, do so by bringing contributions of pure oil. So verse 21, you shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure, beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn. This is commonly understood to refer back to the lampstand, the the golden lampstand. We learned about that in chapter 25. We'll see it again in chapter 37. This was the lampstand which was uh, located the opposite of the bread of the presence in the holy place. We see in verse 21 that it tells us that it was outside the veil that is before the testimony. Recall that the the veil separated the holy place from the holy of holies where no one could enter but only the high priest and he only once per year. Recall that inside was the ark. The ark is sometimes referred to as the ark of the testimony because it contained the law or the testimony. So right outside the veil then was the lamp. Obviously, on the one hand, served that important function of providing light, right? So that the priests could, could see as they were doing their, their, their priestly work. But note that this light never went out. You know, the tabernacle was not like our homes where eventually we, we turn out all the lights and we go to bed, Right? For years, it was always my job after the kids were down to make sure every light was turned off. Now, as I've gotten older and they have gotten older and they stay up later than I do, typically, it's my job to say, whoever goes to bed last, make sure you turn off the lights, right? Well, the Lord never goes to bed. The Lord never sleeps, nor does he ever slumber. His, His light in his house is always, always shining. It shines continually. So an important, important priestly duty then was to keep that light burning. Verse 21, Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning. This section begins sort of a, a transition where we see the important priestly work of Aaron and his sons. We'll pick that up next time. But note here that this was the important work of all God's holy people in that, with all, uh, together with all of the other contributions for the temple, they were to supply the oil, pure oil, 
pure beaten olive oil or, or oil of pressed olives. This was such an important work. Note those words with which our text ends. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Just think about this. Just just as by the continual burning of the sacrifice on the altar, the Lord would sustain that means whereby his people could enjoy continual fellowship with him. Out of that, what else would happen? The holy God would, would use the contributions of the people, the offerings of the people, their oil, to, to, to sustain that continually burning testimony, even though not everyone could see it, but, but something, an ongoing testimony within the holy place. What a testimony indeed. What a testimony to, to the grace of God, whereby he uses sinners who are consecrated, purified, who worship and serve him. This is grace, sanctifying grace. And there's so much we could say about this by way of application. Dear Christian, let me just ask you this. Is the grace of God, which is herein revealed, grace which was revealed even to his old covenant people, but which has more fully been revealed to us, is this sufficient grace for us? Is it sufficient to sustain an ongoing, continually burning flame in terms of fire, uh, of love and devotion to Christ? Back to where we began, right? One application is simply never grow weary of this, this wonderful gospel message which we hear again and again. This, this message of, of forgiveness through atonement, through sacrifice, never allow familiarity to lead to boredom, much less to lead to contempt, right? And contempt for the cross of Christ. Don't grow weary of hearing it. Glory in it. Glory in the cross. Let its testimony forever burn in your hearts. May we forever find ourselves singing with the hymnist. I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else can do. Do you long to hear that story? Do you long for Christ? Do you per- are you persevering in clinging to this gospel message. Receive this as a call to persevere. You know, we think about the the great application of that one New Testament letter, the letter to the Hebrews, which was a message about how everything pertaining to the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, they all pointed to Christ. They all pointed to his once-for-all sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself on the cross. We think of the reminder of the the call to dwell in the presence of God. It was a call heavenward unto God to dwell in that that more perfect tabernacle where Christ has gone before us. The calling unto that city whose builder and maker is God. But what was the big application? Persevere. Persevere. uh, Continue. Keep your eyes fixed upon Christ. By the grace of Christ, is there not for us sufficient oil, as it were, the oil of the Holy Spirit for us to to keep our lamps burning, 
for us not to be like those five foolish virgins our Lord warned about in, his, in that parable in chapter 25 of Matthew. Remember that they, they ran out of oil. No, but the call is be like those wise virgins. Keep your lamps burning, brothers and sisters, as, as true believers, as those who've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Our lamps are well supplied, well supplied to continue, burn, to continue burning until the day when our bridegroom comes and he brings us into the marriage feast of his kingdom. And he calls us to persevere, calls us to persevere in worship, to persevere in corporate worship. We think of Hebrews 10.25 with that command not to forsake the assembly or not to, not to neglect the meeting as it's translated in, in the ESV. And by the way, one significant thing we should note uh, here, something we should not fail to point out, that in here in our text, for the very first time, this marks as a, a, something of a transition where the tabernacle begins being referred to as the tent of meeting. God's purpose is not simply to dwell with his people the way you might dwell with a housemate that you don't mo- know much and hardly ever see and have not much of a relationship with. No, God will meet with his people. Christian, God loves to. He desires to meet with you. Is that something precious to you? Meeting with your God, meeting with him in corporate worship, meeting with him in private worship. Do you you wake up every day with a longing to be in the presence of your God? Brothers and sisters, like that burning testimony of the lamp, may every, every meeting with our God be a uh, a reminder of that blessed hope that a day will come when we will meet with our Savior and glory and be in his presence forever and ever. And so let us, with zeal, let us meet with him, commune with him, receive from him, be filled with his spirit, and then let us return to him our contributions, as it were, service, service that flows out of his great to, uh, grace to us. Again, what grace? To think that, that those contributions were the holy God's means of sustaining the burning light of the lampstand in the holy place. Let, let that encourage us unto good works. That's why for our affirmation of faith, I had us confess what we believe about our good works. Good works, of course, are they're all of God's grace. Israel's contributions were all giving back what God had so graciously given to the people. Well, so it is with, with our good works. Good works, we learn, show that our faith is true. Uh, they, they, they give public testimony of God's grace to us, right? You see that in the, the third line as you look at the, uh, the affirmation of faith as it's printed there in the bulletin. It's, it says that, that by them we manifest our thankfulness. We strengthen our assurance and we we edify our brethren. We adorn the profession of the gospel. We stop the mouths of the adversaries and we glorify God whose workmanship we are created in Christ Jesus thereunto that having our fruit unto holiness we may have the end eternal life. Note those words edify the brethren. We think of the the Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, command to uh, consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And we see that they give testimony before the world. The light 
shined not only there within the holy place, but even out in the world in the lives of God's holy people as they worshipped and served him, their Lord. And friends, if that was true of them, how much more ought it to be true of us? We, We are to live our lives as a continual burning testimony of God's plan to dwell with his people forever and ever. Indeed, by our good works, we're to testify the truth that the light of God's glory, God's own presence, which was at one time confined only to the the holy place and the most holy place, will in the end expand and, and fill the entire cosmos, the entire new world where God will dwell with his people forever. Let that hope, let that truth build us up and encourage us unto obedience, obedience to our Lord's command, Matthew 5, 16. And I end with this. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we know that that will happen only as you By the oil of your spirit, fill us, Lord God. Indeed, cause your word to fill us, to dwell in us, to be like a burning fire, continually burning in our hearts. So, Lord God, may we go from this place, strengthened by your grace, shining for your glory. And for, uh, for this we ask in Jesus' name, amen.